when I was in my first job, one of my work colleagues died, and I, being young and rather naive, wondered if there was some Christian influence on the workplace, because I found people saying things like, he's gone to a better place, or talking about him being in heaven, or even having gone to be with God. I thought, wow, I didn't know there were Christians here. No one said, he's just gone. That's the end of him. Well, I'm told that isn't true of just that workplace. When in hospitals, people usually react to death with some sort of talk as if the person is still alive in some state, somewhere. The sort of life that goes on after death, uh, however vaguely it's put. It's, it's strange that this belief persists across humanity and across history. When humans across history have known that dead bodies in the grave rot away. Is it all just wishful thinking? Or is there any substance to this belief in some sort of life that goes on after death? Is there any real hope for a life that isn't snuffed up and swallowed, snuffed out and swallowed up by the grave? Well, we're going to examine part of the Bible that says, yes, there is a hope. For most people, it is wishful thinking. They're just... They're just making vague statements, but there is actually something more than wishful thinking. There is something more than a vague statement here in this part of the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 22. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 22. It's a letter written to a church in a town called Corinth. It was written by the Apostle Paul, and we can be precise about when he wrote it early in the year 55 AD. That will be significant. Bear that in mind, early in the year 55 AD. Now, let's read again those verses, verse 20 to 22. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, even so, in Christ, all will be made alive. Here we have, firstly, firstly here we have good news, death doesn't have the last say. Verse 20 makes a claim that is to, cele to be celebrated. It, makes, it states a truth to be joyful about. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The Christians in that town called Corinth had been saying, oh, death is the end of our bodies. They, they probably still believed in a life after death that was a, some sort of spiritual shadowy existence. But nothing physical. No, certainly not anything to do with these bodies of ours. And the Apostle Paul has said in verse 12 to 19, but that would mean Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. And that would mean that Christianity is just an idea with no basis in fact. It would mean that Christianity is just a philosophy without any, any foundation in real history. And so he says, verse 20, and notice the way he puts it, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And he's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. He's saying Christ has been raised and so his people will be raised also. And he's telling us that using two pictures. Do you see two pictures in verse 20? The first picture is first fruits. 
Now, I remember hearing this preached in a church one Easter Sunday that was a mud building in the bush of rural eastern Zambia. And it was very understandable to the people there because they were all farmers. They all had their own fields where they grew maize. And each year before harvest, they would reap a small corner of the plot, just a very small part. And although it was very small, it would tell them what the total harvest later would be like. From that first fruits, as it was called, they could work out the quality and the quantity of the harvest they would later be gathering. That's what first fruits means. The small part reaped first that indicates the greater harvest coming later. And Jesus was, we're told here, the first fruits of a coming bigger harvest. Because he has risen, his people, millions of them, will rise also, just like him. Here's the second picture. Do you notice the second picture in verse 20? It talks about people falling asleep. Now, children, you all know about falling asleep. I hope you all fell asleep last night. What does it mean? Who does Paul mean when he says those who have fallen asleep? Who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about Christians who've died. Why does he call it falling asleep? Well, because just like with falling asleep, they'll wake up. He's saying Yes, they're inactive now. Yes, we don't deny that their bodies rot away now, but Jesus will raise them up. Uh, Here's another way of thinking about it. Do you know another word for graveyard? Know another word for that place where people are buried? Well, it's often called a cemetery. Where did that come from? Oh, it's a word that Christians invented because it came from the Greek word for dormitory. Dormitory, a place where people sleep. But one day we'll be raised. And here is the good news that we're to celebrate this morning, but every day, really. Jesus Christ has been raised and so his people will be also. Death does not have the last say. Well, that's the truth asserted in verse 20. But it isn't a mere assertion. It isn't a mere claim. Because Paul has already referred to evidence Have a look back at verse 3 to 8. Paul's already reminded them what they knew. He isn't telling them something new. They knew this already. And he's reminding them that there were people who saw Jesus after he'd risen from the dead. Many people, in fact hundreds of people, and most of them were still alive then at the time of writing now children did you did you notice i said take note when was the letter written can you remember 55 a.d can you do a simple sum how long was that after jesus had died well he died about roughly 33 a.d so we're talking about roughly 22 years later now children to you 22 years might seem a long time but it's not to make a claim like this that there were hundreds of people around who'd seen Jesus after he'd risen. To make a claim so soon after he died, it would be so easy to disprove if it were not true. How would you persuade anyone to believe this difficult thing to believe unless you had the eyewitnesses? But people were persuaded. Loads of people were persuaded. 
here's here's one little significant bit of evidence for that that we can get from outside the Bible. Children, I know some of you heard this in an assembly last year because I took the assembly. And here it is. In the year 64 AD, the great city of Rome was set on fire, terribly damaged by fire. We're not sure how it started, but it's most likely that, strangely, the Emperor Nero himself started the fire. But he certainly wasn't going to admit to that. And so, as rulers often do, he looked for a group to blame. And he blamed the Christians for starting the fire. Now, what does that tell you? Very simple. It tells you there were Christians in Rome and enough of them for the emperor to take notice of them and think there's a group I can blame. That is amazing. Because that tells you in a short time from 33 AD to 64 AD, Christianity had spread across the Roman Empire. It had spread all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. Enough people had been persuaded that Jesus was raised from the dead for the message to spread all that distance. In an age without internet, without even newspapers, when the message could only be spread by people telling others personally, it had spread. It's very hard to explain how that could have happened unless they really did have eyewitnesses that Jesus had been raised. Well, actually, I reckon even having eyewitnesses wouldn't be good enough to explain how it had spread so rapidly and despite pretty fierce opposition. Actually, something more was needed. The Spirit of God working, giving power and life and joy. So it spread. It's not a mere assertion. Paul gives evidence. Death does not have the last say. And as well as evidence, Paul gives explanation. So secondly, let's move on to explanation. We've had evidence, but now explanation of what this means. And first of all, explanation of the need. We need death to not have the last say. We need that because death has its grip on us. Verse 21 reminds us, for since death came through a man, And then verse 22 says, for as in Adam, all die. Death has got its grip on us. Let's have a think about that unpleasant subject. It's actually really hard to work out what the death rate is for coronavirus. Some people say 1%, 2%, 3%, 4% figures are bandied around. Some say, oh, no, that's far too low a figure because they're recording deaths in hospitals and there are many more dying out in the community. Some say, no, actually, that's far too high a figure because the number of people who have coronavirus is far higher than realised. And the figures you'll hear in the news say died with coronavirus, not died of coronavirus. So some say, actually, it's more like 0.1% death rate. Really hard to tell the death rate. But here's a death rate that you can be sure of. Here's a figure you can be completely certain of. The death rate for being human is 100%. Not 99.99% and some chance you might be the exceptional one who escapes it. No, 100%. And that includes you and me. Death has its 
grip on us. Why is that? Why is it so universal? Why does no one escape it? Well, we're given an answer here in verse 21 and 22. Let me try and explain it. It goes a bit like this. God has made this world not just a planet of individuals doing their own thing, unaffected by each other. He's made us communities and families and nations. And people like that until they start to realise the responsibility and the implications. Because it means the people in each depend on the head of their community or family or nation. Simple example, a father has to change jobs and his job takes him from Loughborough to Los Angeles. And so his family all move. And his children have their lives completely changed. I'm sure it's completely different being brought up in Los Angeles rather than Loughborough. Well, Adam was the head of the family of humans, head of the human race. And he rebelled against God and his rebellious attitude has been inherited by us and brought death on all his family. Well, maybe you complain at that. You say, well, that's not fair on me. Why should I be affected by him? Well, if you don't want to sin, if you're an unwilling participant in Adam's and humanity's rebellion against God, then turn from your sin and obey God. And if you don't, you can't complain. Adam and humanity's rebellion is nothing to do with me. It's unfair. We personally each have lived in a way that pushes aside God the giver of life, and so death has us in its vice-like grip. Can anything be done about that? Well, next we have explained to us the solution. And this is also in verse 21, the solution. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. This grip of death has come through a man. And so it would need to be put right by a man. But is there a man? Was there a man who was strong enough to do it? Was there a man who was good enough to do it? Was there a man who was willing to do it for others? Was there a man who was not under the sentence of death himself? Not one could be found. And so the son of God himself becomes Jesus, the son of man came to take the rebel's place, came to die as their substitute, as we heard on Good Friday. And so he took our punishment until he hung there dead on that cross and was laid cold in the grave. But he's the son of God. He's stronger than death. He's paid in full for sin. Death has no more claim on him. And so death couldn't keep its hold on him. Its vice-like grip was broken. There was a man who could break out of it and break its power. So just as the man Adam had introduced death into the world, so the man Jesus introduced resurrection into the world. Remember, this is all explaining that great statement in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It says because Jesus was raised from the dead, his people will be raised. There are many who will be raised. Well, how do we have a share in that? 
How does that connection happen between because Jesus was raised, others will be raised? How do we get to be in those others? What's the condition? Let's thirdly think about this third part of our explanation, the condition. There it is in two words in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, in Christ, all will be made alive. The condition is being in Christ. Now, this is a little odd to us, a little unusual to us. What does it mean? Well, it means just as what Adam did affected not just him, but all his family. So what Jesus did affected not just him, but all his family. Everyone in him, in his family. The way to have a share in his resurrection is to belong to him, to be in his family, to be brought into this relationship so close it can be called being in Christ. Now, the Christian gospel is this amazing news that you are invited to be in this close relationship with him. You're invited to belong to the Jesus who died and rose again for all who are in him. There's a famous church leader. There was a famous church leader hundreds of years ago called Martin Luther. And he had a, a story to picture this. Children, listen, this story isn't true, but it, it pictures a truth that is amazing. And his story went like this. A rich king fell in love with a poor woman who worked on the streets. She's nothing like a queen or a princess. She was a woman that everyone despised, not looked up to. She was also a poor woman in terrible debt. And people thought it was disgraceful for the king to love her. It's beneath you to love her. But more important to him than what others thought was his love for her. And so he did love her and he married her. He married her. And although she wasn't queen like and she certainly wasn't deserving. Because she's now married to the king, she's a queen. And all his riches have become hers for her to enjoy and share and all of her debts have become his for him to wipe out and pay with his great riches and she enjoys sharing in his life do you see the story and the christian gospel is saying king jesus makes that marriage proposal to you he's saying to you you need to recognise you're the undeserving woman of the streets, up to your eyeballs in debt to God. But Jesus makes his proposal to you. Will you say yes to him and be one with him? And then his riches wipe out your debts and you enjoy and share in his resurrection life. Come into relationship with him. You come under him as your head. You trust him with your life. Will you do that? Wherever you are at this moment, I can't see you. Maybe you're on your own. Maybe people are with you. But you could now quietly be saying yes to Jesus' proposal. I want you as my head. I want to come under your care. I need a share in your life. Will you say yes to Jesus' proposal? Well, what's the result? 
We've heard about the need and the solution and the condition, but what's the result of it all? Well, what are the last four words of verse 22? Have a look at verse 22 again and the last four words. Will be made alive. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The person who trusts Jesus has new life now. A life with hope and love and joy and security. But this verse is about something future. That's great, but this verse is something different. It's future. This verse isn't even talking about our spirit's going to be with Jesus when we've died. It's looking beyond that and better than that. It's our bodies being made alive. Our bodies being raised to life again. This is the harvest of which Jesus was the first fruits. And the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 is telling us what that's like. 1 Corinthians 15 is a pretty big chapter. But in one sense, it's fairly straightforward. It's stated the truth in verse 20. And now the rest of the chapter is describing what is that made alive like? And so first of all, it tells us it's being made alive in a new world that Jesus is going to make alive. A world where he will, where, where everything that opposes him and everything that causes sin and suffering and death will be eliminated by him as he rules. And then it tells us it's being a made, made alive like Jesus when he was made alive. Of course, because it's the harvest and he's the first fruits. So just as it was with Jesus 2000 years ago, it will still be us but renewed. It will still be us, but like we're supposed to be. The image of God, perfect. Not like us now, the image of God spoilt. It will still be us, but different. Here's an example of this. I think of a funeral I took, the funeral of someone many of you knew, John Manton. And on the front of his order of service, there was a picture of him as a young man. It was a great picture. Handsome looking picture. I thought it was a striking picture because of this. I'd only known him in his 70s and 80s. And that picture was of him as a young man. And as I looked at it, it was unquestionably him. Obviously recognisable, but strikingly different. Strikingly different from how I'd seen him. I think that's a good illustration of this. Those in Christ will be raised unquestionably them but strikingly different. And so 1 Corinthians 15 describes to us what this being made alive will be like. And it leads us through this description in such a way that it leads us to the end of the chapter and leads us to say what the end of the chapter says. Verse 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's been taken by Jesus. He took the sting on himself. He had the victory over the grave. Death does not have the last say. If you've said yes to Jesus's proposal, if you are in Christ. You can join in and celebrate his triumph over the grave. 
Football fans may sing when their team has won. Soldiers may sing when their battle has been won. But that should be nothing compared with how the Christian should sing because Jesus has won. And so we can sing, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.